Almighty God, King and Father, all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. For you are our maker and you are our sustainer. You reign and rule supreme. All glory and honor and praise is yours. Blessed be your name. Father, we confess our hearts are so given to rebellion and independence. We naturally recoil at submission and service. Only by faith in Christ and the empowering of your spirit are we able to love, serve, to bow before you and those that you have placed over us. Grant faith, I pray this morning, to trust your divine and good authority over us. And grant us repentance, Lord Jesus, when we seek to push away from this authority that you placed in our lives. May our hearts humbly turn now to place ourselves under the authority of your word and the working of your spirit for your name's sake and for the kingdom that you've promised that will come. Oh, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may you do that even in our midst this morning, we ask. In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about politics and religion. And uh, with that statement, it seems the oxygen is leaving the room, doesn't it? Everybody's tense and on edge. Nobody wants to bring that person to family gathering. How many of you have backed out of the driveway of an event with friends or with family gatherings and you were saying to yourself, I really should not have gone there. I really shouldn't have taken that route because it just did not end very well. Well, this morning we're going to have to go there. And the reason is because if I skipped over chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, uh, you would, you would uh, rebuke me. Uh, we move verse by verse through passages of Scripture. This morning we are in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, and here... We have before us, keep the king's command. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the role of authority that God has given to humanity and specifically to us as a church and how we're to understand that. The good thing, though, is that most of you have not become pretty sure and fixed in your opinions over your relationship between church and state over the last couple of years. Or maybe most of you have, right? Many of us have been thrown into... What was it we were, we were told? It's an unprecedented time. Are you, are you tired of that, that term, right? It's an unprecedented time, so it thrust us into making decisions that we thought we would never have to make. Many of us having to wrestle with issues that we never had to wrestle with before concerning the relationship of what the state had in way of responsibility, what the church has in way of responsibility. Great wisdom is required, discernment. This morning, our text brings us to some of those things. Now, before we get into chapter 8, I want to real quick, if we could, take a moment to, uh, to kind of uh, get into what, where we're at in this text, in, the, in this book, the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, in chapter 1, verse 1, the one who writes this book, uh, Solomon, he refers to himself as the preacher. And so he refers to himself as the preacher, declaring wisdom to God's people. The Hebrew word for preacher is kohelet. And so this is Solomon. Now, do you remember Solomon back in, right at the beginning of his reign? Right when he was first told that he had to step forward as his father David was stepping away? 
Solomon prayed a prayer. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. And he tells, he asked the Lord, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. Why? Solomon asked, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Well, the Lord was pleased with this request that Solomon asked. And so we find in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, it says, the Lord himself says, Behold, I now, this is the Lord speaking to Solomon, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. The Lord says, I'm going to give you, Solomon, I'm going to give you that wise and discerning mind. So that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise after you. In other words, I'm going to make you the wisest man who has ever lived and who will ever live. That's what the scriptures say. This is Solomon, the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. It's 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So this Solomon that was given wisdom by God where none can be compared to him, in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, the real theme of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes he really shares the frustration, the frustration of Solomon as he looks at life and understands, I have this wisdom that God has given to me, and yet I can't fix the things that are in this world that are broken. I can't make the things that are happening in this world. I can't even govern this people in a way that brings them along, in a way that, that does them good and not harm in every case. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 18 speaks of the perplexities of life. And Solomon said, wisdom, even my wisdom, has not been able to be able to work through these perplexities in life. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. And then he speaks of the problem with wisdom in verses 19 through 24 of chapter 7. And he speaks of this problem, so the perplexities and then the problem. And then finally, at the end of chapter 7, he lands with how all of, all of life, all these people are, are, are scheming to get more out of life, to be delivered to, to receive the goods in this life under the sun. And with all of their scheming, they cannot find a place where their heart can be satisfied with these things under the sun. And so Solomon, this man who's more wise than anyone who has ever lived and who ever will live, is saying, even with all my wisdom, I can't fix these things. And he's the one that with all of this perplexity and and, and struggle and frustration, even with the wisdom he has, he now enters into chapter 8. And so this morning, Solomon wants to help us as he continues with his frustration in his fallen world, as he looks at the fallen world and sees just how broken it is. Even he cannot fix it. He wants us to begin to understand how we can better, more wisely live in this fallen world, and especially under the earthly fallen authorities that God has given to us. You see, if Solomon and all of his wisdom and all of his uh, gifts that he's been given by God, all the favor that he's been given by God, can't fix his kingdom, then we need to know that we too live in a fallen world with fallen leaders and authorities that God has given to us. And everything in us wants to rebel and insist on something better. And so Solomon says, I want to help you see how you can wisely live in this world on this earth with these fallen authorities and how you can live rightly and faithfully. So this morning, 
we're going to see as Solomon lays before us four principles for living wisely with earthly authorities. Four principles for living wisely with earthly authorities. And here are the four principles. These are the four points for our text this morning. Notice with me as we walk through verses 1 through 9. Point number one is verse 1, the scarcity of wisdom. The scarcity of wisdom. That's point number one. Principle number one. Point number two, the necessity of wisdom. This is verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, the necessity of wisdom. Point number one, the scarcity of wisdom. Point number two, the necessity of wisdom. That's verses 2 and 3. And then point number three, point number three, the responsibility for wisdom. The responsibility for wisdom. Verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. And then finally, principle number four, point number four, the frailty of wisdom. The frailty of wisdom. This is verses 7 through 9. All right? The scarcity, the necessity, the responsibility, and the frailty. Look with me, if you will, verse number one, the scarcity of wisdom. And let us consider here what Solomon, this wise man, speaks to us about in this world that is under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. The questions that are being asked here, there are two, for us to consider is that a wise man... Um, that a wise man here says, who is like a wise man? And then secondly, who knows the interpretation of a thing? The first question really brings forward the truth of this, is that who knows who is like a wise man? The, the answer is, very few are. There are very few wise men on earth. It not, it, wisdom doesn't just happen as people get older. Wisdom doesn't happen just because somebody gets a podcast. Wisdom doesn't happen because somebody has a lot to say. Wisdom is not something that naturally happens to a person. It is, brothers and sisters, a rarity. Who is like the wise? There are very, very few. This is an important principle as we consider this world that we live in and we consider the leaders that we live under. If we have many, many leaders, then the likelihood is that we have very few wise men that are leading us. And that is simply a truth from God's Word. Thus, the the answer to this question, who is like the wise? The answer is, is there are very, very, very few that are like the wise. There are very few who are wise. This wise man is few and far between. There's not one born every day. They're very rare. Kohelet then, the preacher for Ecclesiastes, turns and asks another question, the second question. He says, and, and he really asks this question. He says, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? In other words, he's not only saying that A wise man is rare, but one who has this unique quality of being able to explain or interpret the things that are going on around us. That person who is careful with their wisdom to be able to help us understand how and why we're to understand these things. The answer is is that we have very few people in our world that can do this. When, one, when, when we ask, and all of us have at one point in time, when we ask, what in the world is going on in this world? There are very few people that we can turn to that will actually give us a wise answer. Now, 
with this rarity of people that are wise, with this rarity of the ability for people to be able to explain what is happening around us truly and faithfully, with these two questions that are before us, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing, with this before us, wouldn't it necessarily obligate us then as God's people to be very selective in who we're allowing to speak into our lives about the things that are around us in this world? And yet, today like none other, so many of us are very influenced by thousands of voices. We give ourselves to all of these different people who have different takes and angles on what they think is going on and how they think things are going to turn out. Brothers and sisters, it is with scarcity scarcity that we should understand. There's very few out there that actually have wisdom. Now, it's easy for us to throw rocks at media, at the, at the secular world out there and say, there's so many talking heads, so many things, so many places to go. I'm not just speaking, and I want us to understand this morning, I'm not just speaking about the secular world. I'm talking about people that claim to be Christians. That are all kinds of different messages that we're listening to. There are few of them that are wise. There are few of them that can interpret the thing. We see here as our passage goes on that if there are so few, if this is a rare thing in our, in our world, if there are so few that are able to wisely explain the things that are around him, then is there any way that we can recognize someone who might be wise? Is there any way that we can, we can understand or see? Because it seems that with that rarity, it seems like they would just be so confusing that nobody would ever know who in fact is wise, who can be the one that interprets these things. Isn't it glorious that our passage here in verse 1 says, Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? And then he gives us a clear characteristic of one who is wise, one who can interpret things. And it is this, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. Now when I speak of a man's face shining, I hope some of you who've read through your Bibles a handful of times... I hope some of you quickly come, who comes first to mind? Well, hopefully Moses is the first one that comes to mind. Moses, who had his face that was shining before God's people, reflecting the very radiance of God. Why? Because Moses was in the presence of the Lord. Why was his face shining? Because he was with God. He uniquely knew God. He spent time with the Lord. And so we see Moses' face shining as the Lord's favor and blessing was upon him. And that's what this means. It seems very cloaked and mysterious. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. The issue here is that this man's wisdom comes from, the, from one who's been in the very presence of God, who spent time with God, who has so spent time with God that his very face reflects the very glory of God himself. That's what Moses was like. This blessing of going and hearing from the Lord being blessed by the Lord, having the Lord show His favor and blessing upon us is what we pray many times as we close the worship service on Lord's Day. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, as we close our service this morning, we'll be reading or hearing this together as I bless you and pray for you as we go. And this is the blessing that will be prayed. Listen, may the Lord bless you and keep you. What's the next phrase? 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. In other words, may the Lord show his favor to you, give you grace and wisdom and favor. May he go with you. And it goes on, it says in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The face shining then is a clear marker of the Lord's blessing and one who has been with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is a rarity today by most who you are listening to that it's interpreting in the times. Is that true? It is very true. These are not men and women who have been with the Lord. These are not men and women who have their face, their countenance is one that has been calmed by the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This blessing, this presence, this favor can be recognized by the shining of the face. Now, this is hard to describe, the shining of the face or this disposition or countenance, but it's easy to recognize. Hard to explain or describe, but it's easy to recognize. And let me, or let me explain it this way, and maybe you can realize what, how one can recognize it. Many of you in here are moms. And as a mom, you can look at your child, and you can tell that your child's not feeling well, before he or she ever shows any symptoms. And if I ask you as a mom, what is it that cued you in to your child's not feeling well? Typically, that mom will say, I can see it in her eyes. You know what I'm talking about, right? A mom can look into the face of their child, and before that child even shows any, any semblance of any symptoms of being sick, they can tell by the very countenance of their child this child is sick or getting ready to run a fever or not feeling well. Brothers and sisters, in that same way, we need to be people. When people come into our presence and when they talk with us and when they interact with us, they need to be able to tell that we've spent time with God, that we've been before Him, that we've poured over His scriptures, that we have spent time in prayer, that we're those who have been, been shaped by our God, and that when we come out of that closet, that we're those who are marked by his countenance, that his glory emanates from us by our words and by our countenance. We're not those who are frantic and running around, but we're those who are calm and confident that the God of peace orders and orchestrates our world. Now, let's be very mindful of this fact that when Moses had his face shining, did that shining face of Moses compel God's people to draw close? Not at all. In fact, it caused God's people to push him away. The wisdom that comes from God is so very distinct from the wisdom of this world that if a man or woman of God decides to spend time with God and reflect God's glory into the world that we live in, we will not be drawn near to the world. We will be cast out of this world. We will be misunderstood and even shunned, just as Moses was. By God's people. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 30 says, When Moses came down from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. Listen to the end of verse 30 of chapter 34 of Exodus. And they were afraid to come near him. 
we know that this kind of fear, this kind of pushing away, not only happened to Moses in the Old Testament, but also to another man in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there was a man, a deacon by the name of Stephen, a faithful man. And we have a record of his last breath on earth. It says in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, listen to what Stephen was doing. Listen to how Stephen was perceived as he was declaring God's word as one who had been with God. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, do you hear that? Was doing great and great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, listen, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now this is a man full of grace and power. The religious leaders from the synagogue rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand. Listen what it says. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. A wise man. Very, very rare, Stephen was. Then they secretly instigated men who would say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You see what they're doing? They're stirring an insurrection against him. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set false witnesses and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. Verse 15 of Acts chapter 6 says this, And gazing at him, Stephen, this is the council, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What did they do to that man? Well, they killed him. The first martyr of thousands and thousands for the Christian faith. Now, why am I spending so much time on this this morning, on on this one verse here? Because I believe that we are giving ourselves to so much foolishness today. We're allowing ourselves to be given to hundreds and hundreds of voices that are possibly helpful, but not godly. My encouragement to you is that our hearts are already prone to fear and frantic nature. And so why would we give ourselves to a thousand different voices instead of asking that the Lord would grant us His grace? That we may find the few, the rare, that are the wise men who can interpret the things that are around us and be able to guide us faithfully and carefully in this world that God has given to us. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that our only source of true wisdom comes from one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through His life that we can grow in wisdom. It is only through Him and Him alone. We cannot grow in wisdom if we try to draw from all the different religions and faiths of the world. And don't don't be foolish as to assume that those who are speaking to us from all of these other secular media outlets are not following after their own ashram and idols and deities of their own making of of this culture. It is all religions that are being fostered before us. And we're called as Christians to follow after the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone will we find 
wisdom. And only when we spend time with the one who referred to himself as truly and truly, he referred to himself as the light of the world. When we spend much time with our Savior each day, drawing from his wisdom, lingering in his presence, we will, like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, we will all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It will be evident that we've been with God. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Point number one, the scarcity of wisdom. Principle number one, as we consider how are we to live in this world with so many earthly authorities that can't fix our lives, that we so desperately go after, know that there are so few who are wise, so few who can interpret the times. Be mindful of this as we live in this world that we are in, under the authorities that God has given to us. We're so quick to run after the next guy that we think is going to take care of things or fix things. There is only one who will deliver us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number two, the necessity of wisdom. Look with me at verses two and three. We turn from the scarcity of wisdom to the necessity of wisdom. Wisdom is required of us who are living in this fallen, broken world. We were created, brothers and sisters, not as individuals, but as those who are to be living not as independent for our own purposes and achievements, but instead we were created as those who who are supposed to be living in community. We are naturally social beings. Aristotle's label for humanity that's so popular is that Aristotle called us political animals. It's interesting, those two words and that phrase, if you just kind of think through it. It confirms what Bob Inc., theologian and pastor, says when he speaks of this very nature. He says, we were born out of, in, and for community. We were born out of, in, and for community. This means that each and every one of us desire to be together and to work together. And yet, there's this false community, this false social network that we have today that actually is creating isolationism. It's interesting how broken the world can make something. (laughs) It's amazing how broken the world can take something that's wonderful and good and make it something that's so bad and horrible and lonely and desperate. So we're unable to exist or even to understand ourselves apart from the communities that God has placed us in. These social networks that we're connected to in many ways define us. And we must understand then with wisdom, how we're to live in these communities. And most importantly, most directly for our text, we need to understand how we're to live in this broken and fallen world with the authorities that God has given to us in these communities that God has placed us in. So Solomon becomes very specific here and practical in his wisdom. How are we to live under these earthly authorities, these earthly kings that he's aware of, can't fix things, and yet God has given them this authority? Ecclesiastes 8, verses 2 and 3. Look with me, if you will. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Verse 2 sets before us a commandment that we are expected to take seriously. 
Notice how odd the wording is in this command. Every English translation really works around it because it's it's really an odd way of wording it. It really accentuates and emphasizes the, the importance and the seriousness, the gravity of this command. Listen to it again. I say, keep the king's command. Interesting. That's not how we would speak. And the next phrase explains how we are to keep it. What manner, with what kind of concern, are we to have in keeping this king's command? It says, keep the king's command. Why? Because of God's oath to him. Meaning, what does that mean? It means that the Lord has placed this king, this authority in our lives. He's the one that placed this king in this position. And with this God-given authority, we're to obey the king as one who's been given that authority by God himself. God has not made a mistake. He is not up there trying to figure out how to get this guy out of office because he's really messing things up. The Lord's not wringing his hands and wondering what's going on. Proverbs 8.15 says this, By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, Proverbs 18 verse 16 says, By me princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. The authorities we have, all the various authorities, from, if you will, the husbands and parents in the homes, from the bosses that are at work, to the police that are in our town, to the state and national leaders that we have, all are sinners. And yet all have been given the authority that they've been given by God himself, that we might keep their command. This is the clear meaning and the obvious implication then, not only of what's sitting here before us, <clears throat> excuse me, but also how we've understood the fifth commandment throughout the centuries of the church. Not just recently, but for hundreds and hundreds of years. The fifth commandment, all of us know what that is. How, what's the command of the fifth commandment? Honor, right? Honor your father and mother. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. When we honor our father and mother, that honoring and revering the authority of father and mother in the home then is the building blocks for every other authority throughout the rest of humanity. Every person has a father and mother. And the Lord expects us to learn how to submit to that authority, even though they're sinners. Even though, in many cases, many of us had parents that were not believers even, and yet we're to submit to that authority. And as we learn to submit to that authority, we're learning how to submit to all the other sinful authorities that are above us, that God has given to us. No wonder our world is in such a bad place. The parents have relegated their responsibility and no longer are issuing their authority to to do what they need to do over their children. And so therefore the children are doing whatever they want to do. And now nobody sees the need for any authority at all. It's anarchy. And it breaks down when we do not honor father and mother. So building on this foundation of authority, we all have, we are then to grow and learn how to honor the authorities that God has placed in our lives as we go through our lives. In our larger Baptist catechism, We have the Baptist Catechism, which is a shorter version, but there's a larger one that expands an understanding of different things. This uh, larger catechism has been around for hundreds of years. It explains further what this fifth commandment means and how we're to understand it. Question 113 of our Baptist larger catechism asks this question. To whom does father and mother refer in the fifth commandment? Who is it talking about? 
This is what has been understood, again, throughout the centuries of the church. Answer, father and mother refer not just to our natural parents, but to all superiors in age and gifts, and especially to those whom God has ordained to be over us in positions of authority, whether in our family, the church, our civil government, The terms father and mother remind those in authority that like natural parents, they are responsible for and should act in a loving and tender way, appropriately reflecting their particular relationship toward those under them. And those under them are also encouraged to accept their authority more willingly and cheerfully as if they were their natural parents. That's question 113. A couple of questions down. Question 115 asks this. Question 115 in the larger catechism says, what kind of honor is owed to those over us? In other words, it's asking specifically, what does this honor look like? It explains in the answer of question 115, it says this, those over us deserve respect in our hearts. And that's, that's, that's amazing. Those over us deserve respect in our hearts, our words, and our actions. We must pray and give thanks for them, emulate their virtues and gifts, willingly heed and obey their lawful commands and advice, submit to their correction, be faithful to them, and defend and support their persons and authority, as is appropriate to their rank and position. We must also tolerate their imperfections and infirmities and cover them with our love so that we will be an honor to them and to their authority. Now, every, every one of us here this morning, I would assume, if your heart is like mine, has a little bit of don't tread on me spirit in us. It's, it's part of who we are. Maybe even, maybe even the very fabric of our revolutionary American individualism that's in some of us. And yet, we as God's people must be reminded and we must think more carefully about the fact that we are first and foremost not Americans or even whatever nation you may belong to, but we are Christ's people. We are Christians. We belong first and foremost to a kingdom of heaven and a kingdom of God. We must ask how we must submit to our Savior. How would he call us to submit before him? The lordship of Jesus means this area of our life as well. It's easy for us to kind of dismiss this in our society today, especially when we see so many bad things going on. Brothers and sisters, we have not lived in the worst society. Um, There are all kinds of other nations today as well as throughout history, who have lived under much worse circumstances that wrote these things that I'm reading to you from hundreds of years ago. They're writing those very things. During the very time of the scriptures, these things were difficult to swallow and to understand. Let's let's ask the Lord to grant His Spirit that we may bring forward by the power of His Word and His Spirit Help that we may have faith to know what it means for us to be faithful to this calling to keep the king's command as coming from the Lord. That we may repent of our selfish, independent individualism and be willing to 
live lives of sacrifice and love and interdependence. Romans 13.1 has been read a lot in the last couple of years. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. I, I hear you. I hear your heart right now giving me the argument for that passage that needs to be said because that's not what that means. I hear that. I want to encourage you. Wait a minute. Let's, let's wait and pause and let's ask the Word of God to speak to us without us having the argument before we even approach it. Read another passage that we heard this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as superior or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, as I'm reading those verses, many of you are wanting to um, make your case for those verses that need to be understood better and more properly. Please email me those. I'll be glad to read them and delete them. And uh, so my point here this morning isn't that we can misinterpret these passages. We do misuse and misinterpret these passages often. I, 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 don't, I don't quibble with that. My point is that, is that we're too quick to rise up to dismiss the authority that God has placed over us. We're too quick to walk away. We're too quick trying to defend the misuse of passage that we forget about what God is calling us to. The what ifs. And what about this situation and that situation? And what about what they do and what we've done? And what about all these other things? And what about their place and our place? And all of those things. I'd encourage you to allow the word of God have authority in your life and your heart. Allow the word of God to speak to you through his spirit. Not to rush off to the ways that you can explain this passage so that you can live more comfortably as an American. But instead to ask Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life. And what does that look like? Our text this morning says, I say, keep the king's command. Now, I spent a lot of time there, and I even paused, because this is, this is not where, none of, if I said, okay, I'm done now, we're, we're done, let's go home, let's sing songs, and you, you would be disturbed, right? Because, man, that truth by itself just doesn't set well with any of us. Solomon continues. He does. And I want to continue because the passage does continue. But I don't want us to dismiss what's been said. As if what I just said is now less important because of what's going to be said. I want us to feel the weight of the authority of God as he's given the authorities to us. Brothers and sisters, there are very few in here this morning that have any problem with Jesus being your authority. And yet, you are bothered by every authority that Jesus has given to you in your life. You need to get that right. You need to make that right in your heart. You cannot be okay with Jesus' authority if you're not okay with the authorities that Jesus has placed in your life. Every one of them sinful. Every one of them not faithful perfectly. But yet, God has given them to you for your good 
and for his glory. Solomon continues then in verse 3 to give us a couple of guidelines, if you will, guardrails. Think of it as like the bumpers on both sides of the bowling alley, right? You've got two of them so that the ball will not go into gutters on either side. That's what we have here in verses 3. Uh, verse 3, it says, it says here that this obedience of the king's commands, because submitting to God's authority has never been easy or simple for humanity throughout the history of humanity. We've not been, had, an, had an easy go of this. Verse 3, Solomon warns not to be quick to dismiss the authority of the king and walk away as if you don't have any obligation to him. Look what it says. It says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Because your king and my king and our authorities, they're all foolish. And they do things that are not only silly and wrong and doesn't make any sense at all, but sometimes even sinful. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. But this is not the only guideline or guardrail or bumper that we have here. It continues in verse 3. Look with me, if you will. It says in verse 3, Not only do not be, hasty, be not hasty to go from his presence, but do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The point here is that we are to be careful not to follow the authorities or leaders blindly so that we actually disregard God and his law in the process. We're to understand that our leaders are sinners. And we're not to follow them into sin. These guardrails, these bumpers, if you will, parameter both sides of this, this, this command that says keep the king's command. First, that we don't too quickly dismiss the authorities that God has placed in our lives, which is, I think, the greatest error for us today. Or second, that we don't carelessly obey when they are calling us to disobey God's law. We need to do neither of these things. I hope you can see just how necessarily wise this is for God's people to live in such a way in our present circumstances that we are sojourners and exiles, that we live as if this world is not our main place of living, that our kingdom that we live for is another kingdom. And according to 1 Peter, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, to live wisely, principle number one is to know that wisdom is scarce. Much of what is being said in this world is not wisdom, and we need to be aware of that. Second principle that we need to live by if we live in this world under the authorities that we have is that it is important, it's necessary that we obey the established authorities that God has given to us, and we do that carefully and faithfully. The third principle, point number three, that we see here in verses four through six is the responsibility for wisdom. The point here is basically this, is that if we have so few people that are wise and we necessarily are to be living wisely, then it's easy sometimes for us to look at that and say, you know what, I need to give myself to the news media feeds and I need to do everything I can. Do you know those people that their day rises and falls on what happens on, on, on the news? It's like they live for that. And then, and then when something happens, it's like their life exists for that very thing. There are people who watch, I mean, it's, it's insane. I, I, I go to breakfast and there's a TV in the restaurant, and I'm watching to see the news up there, and they're, they're doing something, right? They're talking about something. Um, I go to lunch, and I'm at a restaurant, and I look up, and they're doing the same thing. 
They're saying the same thing, just doing it over and over and over again. But they make it sound more extraordinary, amazing, and more pertinent. And it's more epic now than it was at breakfast. It's amazing. They keep us cranked up and ramped up. People live that way. Sadly, some of you live that way. We are not to live as if the politics, the laws, the things that are around us, we're not to live as if they are going to be our deliverers. There are some of you, many of you that I know, that are in the other extreme, however. You've done that before. You lived your life pushing hard to know all these things, to be a part of this. And it's honestly worn you out and burned you up. Politics have so ramped you up and pushed so hard that you're jaded and cynical at best. You don't even care anymore. You haven't looked at the news in over six months, and you're a better person because of it, right? Less stressed out. The chaos isn't right in front of you all the time. But our passage here this morning that we have in front of us, verses 4 through 6, tells us that neither a feverish focus on the news nor a frustrated dismissal of world events takes seriously the responsibility that God has given to us to be both wise and faithful stewards in the world that he's called us in. Did you hear that? Let me read that again. Neither a feverish focus on the news nor a frustrated dismissal of world events takes seriously the responsibility that we have to be both wise and faithful stewards of the world that God has placed us in. Notice what verses 4 through 6 speak of. It speaks both of the courage and the cunning that is required for us to be responsible to live in this world with broken, fallen, earthly authorities. Verse 4. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no, will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The nations will continue to clamor and rage around us, brothers and sisters. And most, if that, is unnecessary for us to fix our attention on. Let me be clear. Most of that is unnecessary for us to fix our attention on. However, we are responsible to live wisely in the world that God has placed us in, that we may attempt to model this and reflect this as God's people to be good stewards of the community that God has given to us. One of the ways we try to do this as a congregation may surprise you. One of the ways we try to faithfully help us think through this as a congregation is on, sun, on Sunday mornings when we gather for Lord's Day and we have our service and we have what we call the pastor's prayer or the prayer of supplication. If you notice, even this morning, I prayed for the leaders in a unique way. I prayed for other things. On occasion, we pray for other things that are happening around the world for the Lord to grant his grace and mercy in those areas. We do not focus on those things. Our church is not one that's aimed at a political agenda of any sort. And yet we live in our community and in our world and we pray for specific things. I hope that even by the pastor's prayer and the way we use that pastor's prayer and the way you hear us praying in that way, it'll shape your prayers and it'll help you have a good gauge of how you are to um, balance these things in your own life. One of the ways that we can be responsible, point number three is the responsibility for wisdom. One of the primary ways we can be responsible 
to the community that's around us and specifically to our earthly or ungodly leaders is this. And it's simple. It's, it's, what, it's exactly what God's called us to do. Pray for them. Pray for them. Turn to Christ in prayer and ask Christ to, to have authority in their lives and to triumph over their hearts of, of sin to create repentance and faith in them. Pray that God will place godly men and women around our leaders, that they may be given counsel that is a counsel that is derived from the fear of God. The authorities in our land do have real authority. Do you see that there in verse 4? They do have real authority in our lives. Verse 4 says, The word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, What are you doing? The point is this, for us, and that is this, even though our kings and our authorities may frustrate us, their actions and edicts from our authorities may be very frustrating and very difficult for us to swallow, those things that they do are having real influence. And they have far more influence than our ranting and raging and kicking the cat and being grumpy, stomping around the house. They still remain our authorities. And their word still has far more influence and sway than we have in, the, in, 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 our, in our place of authority. So we need to be responsible for what God's given us authority for and leave their authority where they have give, been given authority. It is still our responsibility to do what they ask us to do to the degree that we're not disobeying the Lord and to be faithful to the best we can. Why? Because there's value in it. Look with me at verse 5. Whoever keeps a command. Well, what command is it speaking of? Well, from the context, it's obviously the king's command. That's the last command that was spoken of here. Whoever keeps the king's command will know no evil thing. But notice with me the deliberate responsibility that goes with this. We're to be doing the king's command, but the responsibility is that we don't just do it whatever, whenever. We we do not need to be careless but responsible when we obey the king's command. We're supposed to not just go along with whatever. We're to pray and seek for wisdom. Willing to do whatever that the king asks as long as it's just and in line with God's word. Not living frustrated lives, even though the circumstances of the edicts and the laws sometimes are frustrating and harsh from our authorities. Listen to how careful and mature way we're to be be responsible to respond to the king's commands. Look at verses 5 and 6. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart, this is what we're being called to, responsibly to be wise, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now those are, those are incredible. The proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. You know what that means? That means that there's a time and a way not for some things. There's some times that we aren't to be doing certain things, and there's some times that we're to make sure we need to be careful to know how we're doing certain things. There's a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. This trouble that's being spoken of, this, having, this, this lying heavy on the man, is what you and I feel when we are under authorities that are, that are calling us, or when we, when we look at our world today, and specifically in our city today, and we see all the crime and the harshness, the, the, the disregard for God and His Word And that's heavy on our hearts. That's exactly what's being spoken of here. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. The broken kings and kingdoms of this world will constantly frustrate us and cause us to hang our heads. An old preacher of time gone by, Charles Bridges, writes, The king's commandment 
when to keep it and when to resist it, the right manner of keeping or resisting. This is sometimes a time, this is sometimes a time and a judgment calling for great discernment. It is not man's natural prudence that suffices. It is the wise man's heart, the heart enlightened by the knowledge of God and his will, the heart that's possessed by the spirit of wisdom. Here alone is the safe discernment. And then he goes on, he says, Too often in the ordinary course we encumber the path with difficulties of our own making. Isn't that true? We, we run off real fast to do whatever, only to cause more problems than good. He goes on, he says, sincere Christians are not always wise. And that's so true. You can be as sincere and diligent and fervent for a good cause, but you haven't yet deciphered the time and the way of going about something. As we often consider as elders how to shepherd you as a congregation, I want you to know that we spend a lot of hours in the elders' meetings Usually it's, it's uh, slotted one Tuesday night each month, but we meet many, many other times. Um, I want you to know that most of the time, the amount of time that's spent in the elders' meeting rarely is about what we need to do. Usually what we need to do is a clear command in Scripture, and we see it right there. Right there is what we need to do in this particular circumstance or with this particular family or with this particular person. That's what we need to do. We spend the vast majority of our time in the elders' meeting praying about how, and when to do it. How and when to do it so that we can bring people along and help them as they grow to be more and more faithful in Christ. Do you see the distinction there? What to do doesn't require a lot of wisdom. How and when to do it requires an incredible amount of discernment. We would do good, brothers and sisters, if we have a place of authority or if we're trying to be faithful to be wise in our particular realms that God's called us in, to know that often God tells us what to do, but how and when we do it requires much faith, much wisdom, and much guidance. Let's close and look at the last few verses here in verses 7 through 8. Verses 7 through 8, point number 4, the frailty of wisdom. The frailty of wisdom. This is in relation to earthly authorities. It continues to be in relation to earthly authorities. Look with me here at verse 7. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? This is the, the king he does not know what, what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. These are the limitations here, verses 7 and 8. These are the limitations of the king. With all of his authority and all of his power, he still has such limited ability to really do any good at all. This is what Solomon, who knew this very well, is communicating here in verses 7 through 8. This preacher is calling us then to live lives of courage and conviction, knowing that though the king may be issuing forth different edicts and calling things to be happening and, and th different things that are going on, that we're to live courageous lives knowing this, that though the king may not know what's going on, he, may, he will never reign perfectly. Our God will. Our King Jesus will. He's not, he's not letting anything outside of his realm. Isn't it glorious? Read through the book of Job some last week. Satan had to come to God before he got any, any, any way of doing anything to Job. Job only, or, uh, Satan only had the authority that God gave to him. That's important for us to look at today when we look at our world. 
in our city, the things that are happening around us. This isn't out of God's control. This is a part of God's plan. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That is still true for every single authority on planet earth. We're, call, we're called to live wisely with discernment, keeping the, commandment, the command of those who have authority over us, knowing that they do not have final authority that God does, and that we can live with confidence knowing that no matter what may happen in way of the authorities that are around us, whether they go or come, or who may be in office, or who may be in control of things or saying things, we can trust that God is still in control because God is the one who ultimately is ordering all these things. And this is why Solomon says in our passage, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Well, the Lord knows, and the king does not ever The king does not ever get outside of the Lord's will. The king does not ever uh, remove himself or thwart what God is ultimately trying to do. This is his frailty. This is the inability that the king has that he'll never let us know about. He is lacking in this ability to know what's going on. Verse 8 continues. If you notice here in verse 8, it gives us four other limitations of this earthly authority. The first one, do you see it It says here in uh, in verse 8, it says... No man has power to retain the spirit. Do you see that? The idea here is, it speaks of the spirit. We know that when we die, the spirit and body is separated. And the idea here is nobody, <clears throat> nobody here today and no authority on planet earth is able to keep a person alive. Now, we foolishly think that the doctors can and the hospitals can. We get angry when we go to the doctor and they can't tell us what's wrong with us. What are they doing? What? They're the doctors. They're supposed to know everything. Be careful. Be careful. You might be making them into a deliverer that will disappoint. The doctors and hospitals don't know any more than what God has given them to know. And your day of death is going to be exactly when God has numbered it. There's no one who can keep you alive. Not even you. Eat all the good stuff. Exercise. Never, never, never. Put down a hot dog, because that'll kill you. And the Lord's going to make your day exactly the same. He's numbered your days, and you're called to be faithful to him. No one can retain the spirit. No one can keep themselves alive, not even the authorities that are over us. Even though they may say they have a lot of authority, they do not have that authority. Second thing, the second limitation is um, the authorities over us, or none of us in here today, are able to, are able to determine a man's day of death. Only God determines that day. We will have no fewer or no more days than the Lord has given to us. The third limitation here that's being spoken of, it says, No man, verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit nor, or the power over the day of death. It continues in verse 8. The third limitation is, there is no discharge from war. This war here is basically the, the battle that we're all in to stay alive. Every day we get up, we put our feet on the ground, and we go into the day to make sure that we stay alive through that day. We attempt to do everything we can. We're at war with our flesh and the body and all the things that are around us so that we can continue in our day and then lay our heads on our pillow at night. That's a war every day that we enter into. And no matter how good our king may be, no matter how good our authority may be, we cannot be discharged from that war. We're always going to fight to stay alive. 
And fourthly and finally, do you see here in verse 8, it speaks not only of this charge from war, but it goes on and says, Nor shall wickedness deliver those who are given to it. We know that's true. How many people look at the frailty of life and they say, you know what? Eat, drink, and be merry. How many of you know that as people's lives have become more and more evidently um, frail, or maybe they find out, listen, you've only got three years to live, what do they do? They go live it up. I'm going to have pleasures and things. I'm going to buy stuff. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to go after everything. There's even songs about that that people actually, interestingly enough, play at funerals. And I think it's just so desperate of a song to play at a funeral as if the world was worth living for. No matter how good the king is, he is limited in these real ways. And so, brothers and sisters, there's no king out there. There's no ruler or one who can reign over us that can thwart or overcome the very deepest needs of our soul. Except for one. King Jesus. You see, that's why Jesus is called king. Because he, he ultimately defeats and overthrows the final and ultimate enemy that we all have. We think we have all kinds of enemies. And we, we, we talk about them and people chat about them and people, I don't even know what they do online anymore, but they do all those things and talk about how we need to confront and overthrow all these enemies that are in our society. There is still one ultimate enemy, and it is death. And King Jesus has said he went to the grave. He rose again, and he overthrew death and hell for all of those who have placed their faith in him. This morning, as we look together at verse 9, chapter 8 of verse 9, all this, Solomon says, I have observed while applying my heart to all that is done. In other words, he's taken all of his wisdom that God has given to him, and he's applied it to this issue, and he's found that even at his best, notice what it says, when man had power, even Solomon, over man, it was for their hurt, not for their good. So is there any hope for us in this cursed world with vanity, with the vanity of earthly authorities? Yes, there is hope. Because there is one Christ whom we can go to for wisdom. That's the scarcity of wisdom. Only by Christ may we live wisely submitting to, the, to the, those that God has placed over us. And we can only do that through faith in Christ. The responsibility to live in this world being faithful and cunning and courageous can only come through trusting in Christ. And the frailties of all the other kings that we look to, those frailties are not in our Savior who is strong. By faith in Christ, we are called to repent of seeking life and deliverance in any earthly authority and to turn instead to rest in the life that Christ provides for us. He calls himself not only Lord and King, but also shepherd and overseer of our souls. So take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to read this and I want you to follow along and notice. This is our text that we look at this morning in Ecclesiastes. This is our text with Christ at the center. This is what it looks like when we apply Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, with Christ at the center of each one of these truths. This is what it looks like. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. The first word in the ESV is servants, but the word actually is slaves. Be subject to your masters. With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, we're supposed to be subject. For this is a gracious thing 
When, as God's people, we're mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering. How? Unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. Where? In the sight of God. For to this you have been called. This is what we're called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. In other words, he set an example for us how we're to live. So that you might follow in his steps, Christ's steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Here's the example set before us. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. This is what I'm calling you to this morning, church. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray together.